Hey Rebels, welcome to Blasphemous Nutrition. Consider this podcast your pantry full of clarity, perspective, and the nuance needed to counter the superficial health advice so freely given on the internet. I'm Amy, the unapologetically candid host of Blasphemous Nutrition and a double-degreed nutritionist with 20 years experience. I'm here to share a more nuanced take on living and eating well to sustain and recover your health. If you've found most health advice to be so generic as to be meaningless, or so extreme that it's unrealistic, and you don't mind the occasional F-bomb, you've come to the right place. From dissecting the latest nutrition trends to breaking down published research and sharing my own clinical experiences, I'm on a mission to foster clarity amidst all the confusion and empower you to have the health you need to live a life you love. Now let's get started. Welcome to the first episode of Blasphemous Nutrition, where I, your intrepid host Amy, set out to dispel diet dogma, shatter nutrition myths, and serve up a heaping side of salty sauce alongside some sexy science. So I'm going to leap out of the gate today with a highly controversial and inherently blasphemous topic weight loss. While in certain circles we're no longer allowed to discuss this topic because someone might take it personally and be offended, the reality is weight loss is still a top trending search on Google. So I know y'all are thinking about it. You can't hide from me. Not only would it be negligent to start a nutrition podcast in January and not address weight loss, but it would be way too politically correct of me to leave this hot button issue off the table. And that's just not how I roll. So with that in mind, today I'm talking weight. And while the topics of weight these days tend to be about body positivity and weave in elements of systemic racism, that's just a little bit too trendy for me. I'm going to talk about why when it comes to weight loss, we need to be embracing the idea that slower is actually better. But let's be honest, by time we are ready to take action, we have long been done with the situation we're in. Whether it is weight loss or getting our finances in order or kicking that jackass we're dating to the curb. So of course, if you're wanting to lose weight, you want it to be done yesterday. I mean, there's probably a lot you've been living with for a while that is unnerving and feels physically and emotionally uncomfortable. But by and large, pursuing a rapid approach to weight loss, no matter how sexy it seems, is a recipe for rebounded weight gain, dashed hopes, eroded self-confidence, and potentially greater health problems down the road. We have got to stop looking at this as a how fast can I get there solution and start looking at it as a how sustainable can I get there solution. I'm going to assume everybody listening here is wise enough to know that the crash diets that our moms went on, all those grapefruit diets, Metafast diets, the HCG diets, right? Those aren't helpful for long-term success. But in my practice, I also find that the more pressure that one puts on oneself in getting to the end, the worse the overall outcomes are. Even having an attachment to this long-standing premise that healthy weight loss is equal to two pounds a week becomes sabotage when you attach that expectation to yourself, right? Your body is not a median average. So holding it to this one-size-fits-all recommendation or expecting it to perform the same way everybody else's does when it's never done that 
or maybe it hasn't done that in the last 20 years, right? This is its own catastrophic setup of masochism that you just do not need to be strapping yourself to. So today I'm going to address both the physical ramifications of holding these high expectations for ourselves, as well as the psychological ones. Now, some of you may have already lived this out, but I really think it's a helpful reminder, even if none of this is new information for you, because this time of year, we are all fed a lot of enticing bullshit. And we're all susceptible to having momentary lapses of sanity and forgetting our sensibility and succumbing to all the enticing advertising that we're, you know, subjected to. So, you know, on that note, there's going to be a lot of promises and advertisements that are for programs, you know, exercise programs, dietary programs that promise rapid results. All of these will accomplish these results through a severe drop in total caloric intake. If they actually do what they are supposed to and what they are advertising, it is because of an extreme energy deficit, okay? Now, with that severe drop in calories comes a loss of water weight as the body eats through its stored carbohydrates, which are called glycogen. Glycogen is how our body stores excess sugar that's in the bloodstream and tucks it out of the bloodstream so it doesn't do damage and so it's available for quick bursts of energy later if energy you know, energy availability is low, right? Like when you race across the street before the crosswalk turns red on your way to lunch, when you're totally famished. Your blood sugar is low, you're sprinting across the street. This would be a situation where your body would pull out glycogen and use it for energy because the demand was high and it needed it quickly. So to prepare for storing glucose, your body will attach four molecules of water to that glucose. And then it shuttles it away to be stored in the liver and the muscles. When we go on a low-carbohydrate diet or a very low-calorie diet, our body will use this stored energy first before it dips into using fat for fuel. In utilizing this glycogen, we get an initial drop in weight that affirms our decision to begin this crash diet and then tricks us into thinking that, oh, well, this one might be different. That initial drop in weight comes from water loss. Because glycogen is glucose with those four water molecules attached to it, when it's pulled out of the liver and pulled out of the muscle for use, your body clips that water off of the glucose and then uses the glucose for energy. In a low-calorie or low-carbohydrate diet, that water doesn't have any extra glucose to attach onto to be restored into the muscles or the liver. So it gets urinated out. And this is what causes that quick drop in weight in those first, you know, in the first couple weeks of a extra low carb diet or a very low calorie, you know, very significant drop in calories. And that's what gets us excited. At some point in time, though, very soon after we begin a radical change in our diet, these glycogen stores become depleted, and then the body can begin using fat as its predominant fuel source. So while this may work for some of us when we're in our 20s, once we've done it a couple times, our very savvy system, in an attempt to prevent us from quickly dying of starvation, will slow things down 
and this makes it harder to lose weight quickly, this happens through a process called metabolic adaptation. And while diving into that is too robust for today's theme, know that it involves several different hormonal and biological adjustments, which will have a negative impact on your appetite, your movement habits, as well as your caloric burn, and this can lead to slowed or stalled results. Crash diets that have a root in extreme caloric restriction also often include too little protein to preserve muscle mass. So we end our diet, whether or not it was successful, often with less muscle mass than when we began. Okay, folks, this is metabolically catastrophic in my mind because muscle is the third largest calorie burning organ in the body after the brain and the liver. Unlike my brain and liver, I mean, I do have the ability to significantly impact how much muscle mass I have. And so do you. We can't change the mass, the weight, right, of our liver. We can't control how big our liver is, but we can control how much muscle we have. And we never want to be on the losing end of this because muscle loss not only slows down our metabolism, but it also puts us at increased risk of diabetes, osteoporosis, as well as falls that, you know, can break a bone and be quite damaging. It also shortens our time to loss of mobility and ultimately the need for assisted living. By abandoning extreme plans, which inevitably lead to severe caloric restriction, we can instead preserve our metabolic health and longevity by taking a more conserved, gradual approach to weight loss. Now, when it comes to calories, starting off with a reduction of, I don't know, between 10 or 20 percent of your baseline, your typical caloric intake is a good place to start. Many diets will inevitably slash your caloric intake by 50% or more of what is typical. And the greater your history of extreme diets, or the more, and I'm air quoting here, damaged your metabolism is, the slower you'll want to take any kind of caloric reduction. You never want to be hungry all the time. And if you are, it's a sign you're not eating enough. By the way, in clinical practice, I rarely start looking at calories first. There are often better places to look to get results that people are seeking. And by avoiding this whole calorie counting thing, there's a lot less of a psychological mindfuck that someone has the risk of stepping into. Now, psychologically speaking, going low and slow is the key to getting the gold. By losing weight slowly, you allow time to adapt to the new changes that you're making that need to be maintained for your ongoing success. It also allows you to rebuild confidence that you can commit to habits that will ultimately lead to success. If we are going to create change, we have to change how we behave. And that is a process. Very, very, very few people are the kind of people who have the personality where they can just make a decision to do something and do it. And we all know like one or two of those people and we are, I guess I can't speak for you, but if you're like me, you are super jealous that they can just do this like it's no big deal. Um, and, and, you know, they're few and far between. That is not common or typical. So by going slowly and allowing yourself to adapt, 
you then increase your confidence, your skill set, and your resilience in the very actions that will allow you to lose weight and keep that weight off, okay? When I say it allows you to build resilience, that is because by taking time, by going slow with your weight loss plan, you are able to meet, overcome, and learn from more obstacles and more different obstacles that will inevitably present themselves along the way. For my bookkeepers and accountants, it's tax season. For teachers, it's summertime. Not only teachers, but, you know, summer is a big, a big time when a lot of our habits shift. There's also, of course, the inevitable holidays, right? So someone who, say, loses all of their weight between January and April and is able to successfully maintain their habits, they don't have a chance to meet those obstacles and be in pursuit of the goal, focused on the goal, by time the holidays come around. So that newness and that inexperience of meeting that obstacle and overcoming it will often quickly derail them, and then they end up back in January where they were the previous January. So by being committed to this as a long-term process, you allow yourself to have multiple opportunities to navigate the inevitable challenges of life. Slow weight loss also allows you to shift your focus from an external locus of control, right, something that is outside of you, like the scale, to an internal locus of control, like your actions, your habits. And this gives you a better relationship with your body as you approach this as a plan to improve health that happens to have a side effect of weight loss, rather than following rigid rules that don't allow for the inevitable chaos and shifting sands of life. Even when weight loss is your ultimate goal, approaching it from a place of self-nourishment as opposed to being good is empowering and nurturing rather than punitive and demeaning. Like we've had enough of that, right? We have had enough of shaming, punitive, demeaning, BS, weight loss tactics and programs that have this sort of pass-fail metric of success the yes food and the no food list, the X pounds a week expectations list, right? Like we need to transition out of that to something that is more positive and empowering. Now, additionally, rapid weight loss doesn't, you know, allow us to have the time to sustain habits when faced with the very real psychological implications of what it means to live in a smaller body. For many people, their weight is a protection, whether it's against sexual abuse, unwanted advances and attention, or other traumas that they've endured. And it, you know, that trauma, whatever it is, is connected to their body size. It is near impossible to maintain the effort of new behaviors that allow us to maintain a healthy weight when our trauma is all up in our face. Okay. <laughs> I mean, sometimes this happens at a very conscious and cognitive levels. You know, I've had multiple conversations with my clients when they reach that place and it's place of great struggle for them. But it can also occur without an obvious, like without obvious knowledge or without an obvious source. Now, how I see this show up is in rebellious behavior, right? I'm doing this thing 
that I know is self-sabotage. I don't know why. Having a sudden disinterest in the goal, right? Like, oh, I just, yeah, I decided I didn't want to do it. It's too hard. Or, you know, becoming too busy, becoming distracted and too distracted to do what you know you need to do and what ultimately you know you want to do because it's aligned with these values and these ideas that you have about how you want your life to live. So in that situation, taking a slow, steady shift in behaviors and focusing on those behaviors rather than the speed of the scale shifting downward can reduce the psychological triggers that lead to rebellion, that lead to distraction, that cause you to just kind of abandon ship halfway through the process, right? And it allows you, it allows those who have trauma to get those habits firmly established while they address that trauma that can potentially sabotage their results the closer that they get to their results. Ultimately, sustainable weight loss and weight management, which is what we're all looking to achieve, is about doing the things that keep us in a healthy weight more often than things that don't. So whether you're looking to lose weight because your body changed or whether it's because your behaviors changed, new habits need to be created and maintained in order for the results to be sustained. The longer it takes to lose weight, the more you get to practice these habits that lead to successful maintenance. And maintenance is the part of the journey that everybody fears because so few people are able to stay there. So when you take the low and slow route, you have more opportunities to practice these weight loss habits over the course of several challenges, both expected and unexpected, like vacations and holidays, family visits, work stress, et cetera, right? Those who begin a weight loss goal in January and reach it by March or April, like I said, they're going to struggle with changes that come during holidays because they didn't maintain their weight loss habit for a long period of time, right? They didn't maintain the active pursuit of the goal for long enough to master those habits. And if they've lost a significant amount of weight quickly, they've likely employed unsustainable habits in order to lose that weight. So even if they were able to maintain the habit, it's unsustainable. And so it's inherently, and you can't, like, you just can't do that forever, right? Metafast is coming to mind. HCG is coming to mind. When it comes to losing weight, slow and steady wins the race. The more you focus on the habits, the less any backslide becomes some nasty story in your head about how you've personally failed. When someone regains weight that's been lost, it is most often coming from letting habits slide or adopting habits which are unsustainable or inappropriate for a long-term lifestyle. Successful weight maintenance is about changing the way you live your life day in, day out in the most mundane and boring sense of the word, right? And like we don't, weight loss isn't advertised like that, but, but that's the reality. It has to be something that you are willing to do for the rest of your life. You have to be able to have habits that allow you to go on a vacation navigate the holidays without rebound weight gain, weather stressful points in your life, 
and do all of this without feeling that you have failed due to fluctuations in the scale. So research on sustainable weight loss is not especially robust, and most evidence points to how poorly we keep weight off. But the U.S. National Weight Control Registry offers some of the most robust accumulation of anecdotal data available. The NWCR is a research study that gathers information from adults, so those who are 18 and older, who have successfully lost at least 30 pounds and have maintained that weight loss for at least one year or more. The data collected in the study is often used to make recommendations for achieving a healthy weight, and it shows that a consistency of habits, um, logical habits, are the key to success. So while it may not be sustainable for you to implement all of those habits at once, layering in the habits of activity, monitoring your habits, changing your diet over the course of a year are more likely to lead to sustainable loss over time. The data that they collected shows that over 90% of the participants changed what they ate and they increased their activity level, mainly through walking. This is not really a surprise, right? The biggest lifestyle changes that we've had that contribute to obesity are decreased movement and increased consumption of commercially prepared and processed foods. So it is logical that changing that consumption and increasing your movement would lead to a reversal of the obesity. Also, over 75% of participants weighed themselves at least once a week. So this is where the monitoring comes in, right? And while consistent monitoring keeps that awareness at the forefront and prevents weight from sneaking back up on you, I consider scales to be a double-edged sword. Most people struggle too greatly with letting the scale be just a number. And the emotional turmoil that it kicks up can very easily sabotage our efforts. So if this is true for you, you can track and monitor your progress in other ways. Using a tape measurement, right, if you want to keep it physical, food logging, or tracking habits that you know greatly support your ability to stay within a healthy weight range, like the amount of steps you're taking, the alcohol you consume, the servings of produce that you eat daily. And by continuing to monitor your habits, even when the in-laws come over or you go on vacation, you're able to stay consistent and stay top of mind, right? with your goals and your efforts. This really isn't much different than monitoring your financial budget so that the tax man doesn't put you in debt when he comes to collect his dues. Now, when I'm working with my clients, we'll address some of the lowest hanging fruit and find out what that is and then address it first. And that gives us quick wins and kind of the biggest bang for the buck habit building. It could be a high-protein breakfast to kill evening cravings. It could be setting limits on how many times a week someone has beer or dessert at dinner, or even adding some strategic fueling around their exercise to improve their performance and results. Now, once this initial habit is underway, then we layer in more challenging struggles that have historically held them back. So by taking this incremental approach, rather than doing something aggressive like a Whole30, my clients are better able to focus more of their attention on mastery and not be divided by too many competing goals. It's just much easier to make progress with finding an optimal breakfast if you're not also trying to replace everything you threw out in your pantry purge, figure out how to get to the gym four times a week, and deal with those picky family members who insist on eating tempting meals that are not on your plan. 
you're also less likely to be overwhelmed and unable to adjust if there is a challenging week or, heaven forbid, several of them, either anticipated or unexpected. By shifting your dietary change from a focus of restriction to a focus on what to include, what to emphasize, what to begin, you set yourself up for long-term sustainability because this is keying your attention into what you want to be doing forever, not what you want to deny yourself for as long as you possibly can. Now, whatever your primary focus, you want to aim for consistency over perfection, where let's say 80% success is the perfect score. Like, why not grade on a curve? All the colleges do it now. Why not you? Why expect 100% success for, from yourself? Nobody does that anymore. Aside from the practical tips of incrementally layering in new habits, monitoring habits or outcomes that keep you mindful, a key to sustainable weight loss is to anticipate problems and have a game plan to overcome them. Life rarely accommodates our larger goals, so it's important to go into any significant lifestyle change with the expectation that there will be obstacles. You probably already know what some of them are. So if you're not driving right now, take a moment and write down the most anticipated obstacles that prevent you from reaching your goal. If this isn't your first rodeo and you've tried to lose weight before, you probably already know what those are. How are you going to overcome them? What plan needs to be in place to make this as easy as possible? Now, once that is determined, or, you know, at least you have a good sense of it, imagine there's a time when it doesn't work. Your job goes haywire, there's a family emergency or a change of schedules, and what you expect it to work doesn't. So what's your plan B? Now, while some people do anticipate overcoming obstacles, very few create a backup plan for those weeks when you just can't seem to get to the grocery store, or your Zumba coach has the flu, or there's a family emergency that has your whole routine upended. So this extra layer of preparation in having a plan B not only builds greater resiliency into your plan, but it also forces you to navigate the less than perfect choices that you have at your disposal and become more embracing of this idea that good enough is actually good enough. So here's a case in point. A client of mine, and I'm going to call her Debbie, she had a pretty good schedule and flow going on at home. And then without warning, her mom became ill. So suddenly Debbie was flying regularly to her hometown to care for her mom. She was working remotely while there and helping her mother with medical care, finding her assisted living, clearing out her childhood home, right? This was a major disruption. It was totally unexpected. And what was expected was that it was going to extend into the future for quite some time. Now, in the panic of the moment, especially in the early days, we focused on finding protein and veggies for two meals a day. So this was often a salad at the hospital cafeteria or a grocery store rotisserie chicken or packaged deli slices with bagged greens and dressing, but Debbie made it work. Once her mom was stable, she was able to set up a space in her mom's kitchen for quick meals, focusing on ready-made proteins, frozen veggies, right, and salads. Often the kind of bagged, prepared salads, picking out little bits that weren't suitable for her. It wasn't glamorous. It certainly was not fun. 
but it kept Debbie from hitting up the drive through from grabbing whatever looked good in the cafeteria that day, and from trying to create any kind of satisfaction with a lean cuisine. Historically, Debbie would have stayed in a reactive mode, canceling our sessions, saying, oh, I don't have time for this right now, and then just devoting her time exclusively to her mother and putting her own needs on the back burner. But instead, she made, and this is so, um, like, this is so meaningful to me when someone in that moment, they, they, they choose themselves. And she didn't choose herself and sacrifice her mother, right? There was room for both of them. And in that moment, Debbie made a conscious choice to do what felt harder, and that was stay committed, despite not knowing how she was going to pull it off. By having support during this time and us working together to not only create that plan B, but a plan C as well, Debbie employed a great deal of damage control, and she was able to maintain her weight during the initial three months of instability. After this time period, she simply had these routines at home and then routines at her mother's house, and she kind of like straddled these two worlds for a while, but she had strategies in place for each world. And this is what prevented a backslide. Like, this is the great example of where a plateau is actually a phenomenal success story. The key here is to play the long game. Rather than focus on where you want to be in six months, think about where you want to be in 12 months, 18 months, or even three years down the road. This allows you to have more patience and more grace during slip-ups and moments of chaos, and it helps take the panic out of any plateaus that can occur. So speaking of plateaus, that's another <laughs> rather uncommon thing that I tell my clients is to expect plateaus. Plateaus are part of the process, and they're always omitted in nearly every success story. So we have this totally unreasonable expectation that we achieve linear weight loss, right? Oh, Jane started off at this weight. 16 weeks later, she was at this weight. That's this many pounds of weight loss, an average of X pounds a week. And so this is what I can expect. Look, bonk. No, no, that's never how it works. And on some level, we all know this, right? The math never adds up to, you know, oh, I've burned 3,500 calories and look, I lost a pound. That's never how it works in the real world. Plateaus often happen because the metabolism is adjusting to the changes we're making. Plateaus can also happen in times of physical or emotional stress, independent of whether or not that stress impacts what we're eating, okay? The metabolism is very complex, and much of it is still beyond human understanding. At least my understanding. I don't know. Maybe somebody else out there has it figured out. So this often dreaded plateau is, is not the end of the world. It's also important to know that a plateau is not, oh, I haven't any, lost any weight this week, or oh my gosh, it's been two weeks, I haven't lost any weight. It is four to six weeks of no change, not four to six days. If you've maintained your weight for four to six weeks or longer, but you have more that you would like to lose, Congratulate yourself for successfully maintaining that weight loss 
and then revisit your habits to see if they need some tweaking or some reinforcement. You may need to adjust your nutrition slightly or perhaps your activity has changed or some type of activity needs some adjusting. But the most important thing is to treat the situation as a puzzle to solve and not a problem with you or a problem with your body. Assume your body is an ally and not your enemy. I know, I know that's a tough one for many, but your mindset is crucial to your success. I did find a piece of research the other day um, assessing several studies on weight maintenance, which acknowledged the psychological as well as behavioral aspects. And I'll link that in the show notes. It was a pretty neat study. So one's belief in the ability to be effective at weight maintenance and exercise was actually really strongly correlated with their success. And there was also moderate evidence to support the idea that having high physical self-worth is an important part of successfully maintaining weight loss. And it makes sense, right? If you think your body is trash, why would you work hard to keep it functioning optimally? If you have a poor relationship with your body, this is your message to include healing that relationship as part of your overall weight loss plan. For many people focused on measuring success from the scale or a measuring tape, finding those first hits of dopamine from the little wins which aren't the scale or the measuring tape, can be a struggle. But if you focus your attention on daily habits, you can give yourself the win by intentionally, specifically noting to yourself precisely where and when you make the choice that will lead to your success. For instance, if you sit down to a meal where you have the amount of veggies that you're aiming to get, I want you to literally congratulate yourself for doing so. Do it out loud if you want. I know it sounds super hokey. And when you do it the first couple of times, it does feel a little hokey, but it does give you a little boost. I personally like to sit down at the dinner table and dish up and then make a casual remark about how great it is to have all this produce or to have all these colors on my plate. And it acts as a positive reinforcement to myself, but it also does so for children and other family members at the table and reinforces what we want to be eating more of subtly instilling this appreciation in them as well. I think of like all the times on television and movies when someone is trying to change their diet because they have heart disease or they're trying to lose weight and what is modeled there, this feeling of deprivation, no fun, lots of complaining. It's the absolute wrong thing to be focusing on and it pulls us all back down into this boiling pot of misery. Of course, it's common and normal to miss some of those foods, right? But you're not going to get far without cultivating an appreciation for what healthy food can do for you. You have to embrace the change in order to be successful. And if you cannot embrace the change itself, then embrace the desired outcome, right? That can motivate you to do the change and work to integrate that so that the change itself becomes the reward. We're never going to find that kind of modeling in Hollywood, but this idea that we can't change without being miserable is false and toxic, right? It's, it's just, it's, it's toxic BS. So genuinely celebrate all of the non-scale victories that you can find making wise choices, doing that adulting of the meal planning and the grocery shopping, all of the other mundane aspects that are essential for your success. And this will 
increase your confidence and your excitement to do these things. And again, it's not just like, oh, I did it, but like, hey, I did it. Look what I did today. I did the thing. Even if it sucked, I did the thing. And this gives you that dopamine hit that we're accustomed to getting from the scale. And it gives you a dopamine hit tied to the habit that will keep you in a place of sustainable weight loss, which is ultimately what we are all looking for. So focusing on these habits and intentionally giving yourself kudos and props for achieving the consistency of those habits is a success metric that you get to keep utilizing for motivation even after you reach your weight goal. Without the high of chasing the scale, many people will unintentionally lose focus once they reach their goal weight, and then they end up regaining the weight. Or, you know, they're just unable to stay motivated without that dopamine hit of the number trending down. You see how this is inherently unsustainable? If you are tracking your weight and that's what you're doing to motivate yourself to keep going, it is an inherently unsustainable trap. Like, step away from that and focus your attention on what you can keep tracking, what you can continue to feel success over, even after you reach your goals. If you actually do want to use the scale as a monitoring tool, I recommend not weighing more than once a week unless you genuinely have no emotion attached to that number and then do whatever you want. Even a 5% reduction in weight is shown to reduce blood pressure and disease risk factors, so you could celebrate even the smallest of improvements on the scale as well instead of reserving your acknowledgement for more dramatic losses. There was a lot I discussed today, but in closing, here are some of the key takeaways from today's episode. One, let go of the urgency around weight loss and embrace the long game. Think about the person you plan on being in 12, 18 months from now, two years from now. Who is that person? What does that person do that you are learning into becoming? Let go of the urgency of it needing to be done as soon as possible. Number two, slow weight loss allows you to master the lifelong habits that you need for long-term success and overcome more obstacles during that time to improve your skill set. You want to become a master of those healthy habits. And by going slow, you allow yourself to do that. Number three, shifting the focus from the scale to habits and setting up goals and success metrics based upon habits we can control rather than outcomes we cannot ironically allows us to meet those outcomes more often. Number four, Expect plateaus and do not panic. Stay focused on the habits. Review and reassess them if your weight is stable for more than four to six weeks. Number five, your relationship with your body is probably a more important predictor of your success than you want it to be. Work on repairing that relationship if it's been damaged, okay? Super, super important. I cannot emphasize that enough. All right, folks. That's it for today. Thank you so much for tuning into this first episode of Blasphemous Nutrition. Hey, if what you've heard today has been valuable to you, please, please send it to your friends, your coaches, your colleagues. Spread the word. Also, be sure to subscribe to this podcast. They tell me that's the best way that more people can find this content. 
And you want to be helping others find a salty, insane alternative to all the BS that's out there. All right, folks, until next time, thanks so much. This is Amy checking out. If you have found some nuggets of wisdom, make sure to subscribe, rate, and share blasphemous nutrition with those you care about. As you navigate the labyrinth of health advice out there, remember, health is a journey, not a dietary dictatorship. Stay skeptical, stay daring, and challenge the norms that no longer serve you. If you've got burning questions or want to share your own flavor of rebellion, slide into my DMs. Your stories fuel me, and I love hearing them. Thanks again for tuning in to Blasphemous Nutrition. Until next time, this is Amy signing off, reminding you that truth is nuanced, and any dish can be made better with a little bit of sass. Any and all information shared here is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not to be misconstrued as offering medical advice. Listening to this podcast does not constitute a provider-client relationship. Note, I'm not a doctor nor a nurse, and it is imperative that you utilize your brain and your medical team to make the best decisions for your own health. The use of information on this podcast or materials linked to this podcast are at the user's own risk. No information nor resources provided are intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Be a smart human and do not disregard or postpone obtaining medical advice for any medical condition you may have. Seek the assistance of your healthcare team for any such conditions and always do so before making any changes to your medical, nutrition, or health plan.